Hello, I'm Chris Attig, and I'm the host of the VA Form 21 podcast. Welcome to episode number 10, and today we are going to talk about withdrawals. No, I'm not going to give you my debit card PIN number, and we're not quitting smoking. Instead, we're going to talk about a different kind of withdrawal. We're going to talk about the legal standard that the BVA is required to use to find that a claimant withdrew an appeal orally at or before a board hearing. Specifically, we're going to talk about the impact of a recent precedential decision of the U.S. Federal Circuit Court of Appeals in the case of Acree v. O'Rourke. In this decision, this precedential opinion was published June 4, 2008. Before we get to that decision, though, let's get a little bit of business out of the way. The VA Form 21 podcast is a production of the law firm of Attic Steel. Attic Steel provides caring, effective, and efficient representation to veterans battling the VA for benefits in the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims and the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. You can learn more about me and about the law firm of Attic Steel on our website at atticsteel.com. The VA Form 21 podcast is going to provide several different types of episodes. In some episodes, I will share oral arguments from a particular case at the CAVC or the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. I'll share my synopsis or overview of the case and prepare you for the oral arguments that you're about to listen to. In other episodes, I will share with you practical advocacy skills, how to become a better advocate for your veteran clients. And in a third kind of episode, we're going to talk about the business of veterans law. If your law business isn't profitable, you can't help veterans. And I've learned some very hard lessons about how to make a smaller solo law firm profitable in the veterans law practice area, and I'd like to share with you what I've learned. If you've got suggestions about topics that you'd like to hear on this podcast, please feel free to email me at vetlaw at addictsteel.com. If you're getting value from this podcast or just want to support its continued availability, please click the links in the show notes and become a sponsor of the VA Form 21 podcast over at patreon.com forward slash VA Form 21. That link is in the show notes. As a rookie sponsor, I'll give you a sponsors-only episode of the podcast, and I'll start sending you copies of forms and templates that I use every day in my veterans' law practice. Now, becoming a sponsor is completely optional. You do not have to become a sponsor. I'll still love you, and I'll still share all this wonderful information, even if you don't become a sponsor. But becoming a sponsor, well, it just makes you feel good about yourself. So why not do it, right? All right. On to the Federal Circuit's presidential opinion. I'm going to share with you the oral arguments in the case, but before I do, I want to give you a synopsis or overview. We're going to take a first look at the deep issue in the case. What's a deep issue? So many issues are presented in a particular appeal. The idea behind a deep issue is that it cuts to the core of the dispute, some say the flashpoint of controversy between the parties, and it's really the impetus that drove the court's decision. After we talk about that, we'll talk a little bit about what and how the court made its decision. And after that, I'm going to share my takeaway points for veterans advocates. Then, you can keep listening to the oral arguments at the Federal Circuit if you like. Listen, these arguments are worth listening to. Arguing for the appellant is Natalie Bennett, former law clerk to Federal Circuit Judge Reyna. Her argument is skillful, succinct, and persuasive, and is an excellent example of oral advocacy at the circuit. What's the deep issue in the case? Let's start here. VA regulations provide that a veteran's appeal may be withdrawn as to any or all issues involved in the appeal. That's 38 CFR 20.204A. 
A statement made by a veteran at a board hearing qualifies as an effective claim withdrawal in accordance with the regulation only where it meets three criteria. One, it's got to be explicit. Two, it's got to be unambiguous. And three, it's got to be done with a full understanding of the consequences of such action on the part of the veteran. Those three standards come from the Delisio case, and the site is in the show notes. In this particular case, the BVA hearing officer asked the veteran if he was withdrawing seven of his 11 claims from the appeal. This is the extent of the conversation. I tried to do this doing uh, different voices for the board member and the veteran, but uh, it was strongly encouraged that I not do that. (laughs) So here's what the board member said. The issues certified for appellate consideration today, well, there's more issues certified than what we're going to be discussing because some of the issues have been withdrawn. So let me address the issues that have been withdrawn first. The issue of an effective, of an increased rating for degenerative arthritis of the tendonitis of the left shoulder, an early effective date, and goes on and on and on. You're withdrawing your appeal with respect to all of those issues. Is that correct, Mr. Acree? The veteran responds, yes. So the question for the court, the deep issue that the court faced was, can a single word answer at a BVA hearing demonstrate a full understanding of the consequences for withdrawal of a claim under 38 CFR 20.204. What did the Federal Circuit decide? The Federal Circuit found that because there has been no finding regarding whether Mr. Cree understood the consequences of withdrawing his claims, we remand this case for further development. Although the court correctly articulated the three-part Delisio standard, it improperly absolved the board of any obligation to apply the third prong of that standard. The VA had asserted an oral argument at the Federal Circuit that the Veterans Court properly applied that standard in a flexible manner. The Secretary also believed that an authorized representative could withdraw an appeal consistent with 20.204A, which allows a veteran or a veteran's authorized representative to withdraw an appeal. The panel of the Federal Circuit Court was not persuaded, and I'm going to read you what they wrote. No amount of flexibility can salvage a decision which apparently gave no consideration to whether this requirement was satisfied. As to the argument that a veteran's representative could withdraw appeal, the court called on the Secretary's words in the notice and comment portion of 20.204A, which it found inconsistent with the Secretary's position on appeal. And in doing so, it found that in the unusual instances in which a representative appears alone before the board and seeks to withdraw one or more claims, it is unlikely to be unduly burdensome for the hearing officer to determine, either by questioning the representative or by contacting the veteran directly, that the veteran firmly intends to withdraw a claim and understands the consequences of claim withdrawal. So what are the takeaway points for VSOs and veterans disability advocates? Number one, it is common for the BVA to convince a veteran to withdraw an appeal. It's very common in my experience for a BVA hearing officer to encourage a veteran to withdraw an appeal orally in an off-the-record discussion before the BVA hearing. The BVA hearing officers frequently do this to reduce the number of issues they have to address, and although the veteran in this case was represented by a DAV veteran service representative at the board, they frequently do so and do the very same thing when a veteran is pro se. VA regional offices often talk a veteran into withdrawing an appeal or claim as part of a horse trade. They say, we'll grant you claim X if you withdraw an appeal for claim Y. 
Because the veteran doesn't know that Claim Y has the potential to provide much more in past due and future benefits, he or she often agrees to withdraw an appeal in exchange for faster processing of another one. Most times, the regional office double-crosses the veteran and declines the benefit under the non-withdrawn claim or appeal, leaving the veteran high and dry with nothing on either condition. It's my position that you should never withdraw an appeal or claim unless it is wholly frivolous and without legal merit. And I'm speaking specifically about before the regional office and the board. If you don't know that to be the case, don't withdraw. Make the VA and BVA do the work that they are required to do. It's also my position that these pre-hearing withdrawals actually constitute a pre-hearing conference, which I believe the BVA should record as part of its hearing recording. However, they do not, so there is often no record of why the appeal was withdrawn or what the BVA hearing officer said to convince the veteran to withdraw an appeal. I recommend that veterans and uh, representatives appearing for veterans make their own recording of the BVA pre-hearing conference and have it transcribed and certified by a local court reporter. Such a transcription could be provided as part of the record before the agency at the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. In fact, my law firm, Attic Steel, has a current CAVC appeal considering this very question. When a pro se veteran records the pre-hearing conference and the BVA hearing officer persuades him to withdraw an issue on appeal, the recording and its transcription should be a part of the record before the agency. That's currently in the Rule 10 dispute phase right now. We're briefing that issue in the case of Zeminski v. O'Rourke, CAVC number 17-3807. It's worth noting that the Veterans Court currently also has an appeal set for oral arguments addressing the Delisio standard relied on by the Federal Circuit, and that's Graham v. O'Rourke, and that's Veterans Court cause number 17-1519. I'm not sure what's going to become of the Graham appeal in light of the Federal Circuit's decision in a Cree, but I will certainly keep you posted. In the meantime, my recommendation is that you don't withdraw anything before the BVA. Most practitioners with less than five years' experience have little idea of the consequences of that withdrawal. It takes at least that long of a practice in a variety of different types and cases and clients to gain an understanding of the full scope of relief that may be available at the BVA or legal issues that are changing in the landscape of veterans' law. If you find that the BVA withdrew your appeal based on some standard less than the three noted in the Delisio case, please contact the law firm of Attic Steel to inquire about possible representation at the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. The second takeaway for veterans advocates and VSOs is a comment on the informality of proceedings at the BVA. The court's adoption of the Delisio standard for verbal claim withdrawal drew heavily on the idea that the veterans benefits system is uniquely pro-claimant. It looked to the Comer case, and I'm 100% sure I pronounced that incorrectly, C-O-M-E-R, for finding that the VA system is not meant to be a trap for the unwary or a stratagem to deny compensation to a veteran who has a valid claim. The citation to that quote is in the show notes. The court found that adopting the Delisio standard served as a bulwark against the inadvertent or uninformed forfeiture of a veteran's right. And for that particular statement, they cited to a case that is of growing significance um, in a lot of areas in veterans' law, and that's Henderson v. Shinseki. It's a Supreme Court case from 2011. Uh, I'm going to read you the parenthetical that they cited. The VA's adjudicatory process is designed to function throughout with a high degree of informality and solicitude for the claimant. For the claimant. I want to emphasize that. These citations are significant. Comer, Henderson, and a third case cited in this decision 
Jaquay, J-A-Q-U-A-Y, are key cases that underpin the pro-veteran canon. The idea that veterans' benefit statutes are to be construed to inure to the veterans' benefit. To be clear, the Federal Circuit did not mention or cite to the pro-veteran canon in its decision. What it did, though, I think, by citing these cases and by reviewing the error of the Veterans Court, was to reinforce the foundation that this system should be informally and simultaneously benefit the veteran. The VA Secretary often believes that that informality means something different than it does, that somehow being informal means being flexible and not fully applying the law. Instead, what it means is that the veteran should not have to navigate a labyrinth even while the VA is required to fully comply with the law. We're going to talk a lot more on this podcast and on my VA Form 21 blog about the non-adversarial system and about the concept of informality versus formality and about the pro-veteran canon. So there'll be more on this later, but I want you to think about the applicability of the pro-veteran canon as something more than just a statutory construction tool. In your cases, How could the VA's strict application of a law, rule, or regulation benefit your client without requiring a high degree of formality from the veteran in an evoking of the law or its application? Think about that. Rewind it and listen to it again. I'm being intentionally subtle here. What I want you to think about and what I want you to reach out to me discuss are cases where a VA statute or regulation has a strict rule but that strictness is being used to harm the veteran's interest in prosecuting a claim or an appeal. It is these cases which I believe can be used to help bolster the pro-veteran canon as a tool that goes far beyond a tool for statutory or regulatory interpretation. Look to the language in the Acree case and think of scenarios where it's unlikely to be unduly burdensome for the hearing officer to determine either by questioning the representative or by contacting the veteran directly to resolve a particular issue. I've got two or three specific scenarios in mind. What about you? Shoot me an email at vetlawdaddictsteel.com and tell me what you think. Now, we're going to transition to the oral arguments before the Federal Circuit. I really think you should take a listen to these. These are uh, some really, really well-argued points by both sides. I was particularly impressed by the petitioners or the appellant's um, advocate. It's an example of excellence, I believe, in oral argument at the Federal Circuit. But while you're getting ready for the audio change, we did not make this recording. This recording was done by the court. It's going to be a different type and quality of audio. And depending on what you're listening to this on, you may hear a really, really, really loud uh, recording or your recording may go really, really soft. So I just want you to be ready on that volume button to adjust either way so you don't get blown out of the... Uh, water by a, a huge increase in volume. But while I'm while you're getting ready to do that, I want to tell you about the technical details of this case from the BVA to the Federal Circuit. Think of it as the credit roll, if you will. So the board decision came out November 20th, 2014. It was a decision that came out of the Louisville, Kentucky VA regional office. The veteran was represented by the DAV, Disabled American Veterans, at the board hearing. And the BVA Veterans Law Judge was Milo H. Hawley. When the case went to the Veterans Court, the Veterans Court issued their decision on January 30th, 2017. Representing the government from the VA's Office of General Counsel was Joshua L. Walensky on the briefs and on the merits. And the veteran was represented by Natalie A. Bennett. 
And you can find a link to her bio on the website of law firm McDermott, Will, and Emery, LLP, in the show notes. The Veterans Court judge deciding the case and writing the memorandum decision was Judge Alan G. Lance, Sr. When this case went to the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, the decision was issued June 4, 2008. The Department of Justice represented the VA at the Federal Circuit, and that was Alexander O. Canizares. And I apologize, sir, if I mispronounced your name. Please email me and let me know how to correctly pronounce it. The veteran was again represented by Natalie A. Bennett of the McDermott, Will, and Emery Law Firm. And the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals panel consisted of Circuit Judge Richard G. Toronto, Circuit Judge Robert Mayer, and the opinion author was Circuit Judge Kathleen O'Malley. You can find links to all of the briefs at the Veterans Court, the board decision, the, uh, the court's uh, decision, as well as the blue, red, and gray briefs at the Federal Circuit, links to the audio from the oral arguments without this podcast, and link to the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals decision um, on the website at adagsteel.com. So at this point, with no further ado, we're going to transition to the oral arguments. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the VA Form 21 podcast. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. The court has four cases before it this morning, only three of which are being argued today. Um, the first case is a Cree versus Wilkie. Um, it is case number 171749, and it is appeal an appeal from uh, the United States Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Uh, Ms. Bennett, I understand you want two minutes for rebuttal? Yes, Your Honor. Okay, you may begin. May it please the court. This appeal is about requiring the board to abide by a fair process. There are three criteria governing effective withdrawal of an appeal under 38 CFR section 20.204 B1. The withdrawal must be explicit, unambiguous, and done with a full understanding of the consequences on the part of the claimant. When you, when you say the, those are three requirements, you're not reading from the, from the regulation, right? Correct, Your Honor. I'm not reading from the regulation. The three criteria are an interpretation of the regulation by the Veterans Court um, that's been put forward in the Delizio case and more recently in the presidential Warren v. McDonald case. But I would agree that the regulation itself is silent. Do we have to decide whether that three-part interpretation is, in fact, a proper interpretation of one or the other of the two regulations that uh, you've relied on here? I would submit that the court has to adopt some interpretation. I think the VA's brief cites to a number of non-precedential decisions that have recently been put forward by the Veterans Court where you see that there is some disparity in terms of how this rule is being applied. And this court is free to reinterpret it differently than the Veterans Court, but at a minimum, I think this court has to interpretation the regulation. So there is some guidance both to the board and to claimants who are in this situation. So so it's your view that the um, interpretation of the regulation as, as applied by the board was unreasonable? Um, There was no application of the legal standard, the three criteria by the board. There were absolutely no factual findings as to what the veteran did or did not understand. 
And so we would argue it's not a misapplication, it's that there's no application and that's erroneous and cannot shield the VA from further review. When I look at this transcript on which you rely, I feel like I'm coming in in the middle of a conversation. It appears that there was at least some understanding on the part of the hearing officer that something was going to be withdrawn. Where did that come from? I would agree with Your Honor. Unfortunately, whatever conversation may have been had was not on the record as was required by the regulation. What seems to have happened is that the representative, who was not an attorney, he was assigned by the Disabled Veterans Association of America, had some sort of off-the-record discussion with the hearing officer. We have no indication that that conformed to what Mr. Acree understood, what he wanted to happen. And I believe if Mr. Acree were being called to testify, I mean, we can't rely on this, but he would say that he never intended to give up certain claims, especially the PTSD claim and the claim for Gulf War hazards. Those were incredibly important to him. His representative had some sort of conversation with the hearing officer on the record. He said yes, and then it was over. And I think that that just illustrates the need for the questions from the hearing officer to be coming directly to the veteran. And were there to be some clarification of, you understand this is being given up forever, or not forever, but you understand that you are giving up this claim, you understand what the consequences of this withdrawal are, are you on any substances today that would prevent you from agreeing to what we understand is occurring? And it would take really 30 seconds. It would not be administratively burdensome and would guarantee that a claimant, someone who's not a sophisticated litigant, and in this situation someone who didn't have legal counsel, wouldn't end up after that hearing unsure as to what had happened and what he had given up. Do you think that there is a similar kind of requirement when the withdrawal is submitted on a piece of paper? And if, I mean, I don't see that in the regulation. That is, the regulation says in writing, and it doesn't say, and you must also, I don't either have a certificate that says I fully understand everything, or the kind of language you used, I'm not on impairing medications or something. Why would there be more at an oral hearing than in writing? I understand the regulation just states certain information that must be provided to withdraw the claim. I'd submit that the standard should be different because when you're submitting something in a writing, you have time to go ask questions of someone, you have time to think about it, you have time to maybe research and make sure that you're comfortable with what it is that you're signing, you're affirmatively making the submission. I think a really good analogy is a settlement agreement that's done in the courtroom or in the midst of a proceedings. If you have a settlement agreement that's in writing, that's submitted to the court, you have the text of what the parties have agreed to, and you can presume that there's informed consent and that everyone is entering into this willingly. But when a settlement agreement is put on the record in court, very often there's a discussion with the court that everyone has agreed to these terms, there are no misunderstandings, because the last thing that a court presiding over a case that's settled wants to happen is that people are not sure as to what it is they've agreed to. So just the nature of submitting something in a writing, which 
has kind of built into it informed consent. The veteran himself does not have to sign this writing, right? No, his representative could sign the writing. So is it your position that to the extent there were off-the-record conversations, that those off-the-record conversations actually violated the writing requirement? There was no writing, and I think the writing requirement just doesn't apply in this case. If the representative had had these conversations with the hearing officer, gone back to his client, they had written it all down and he'd signed it and they submitted it, we wouldn't be here today. We're here today because we have no confirmation that the veteran actually stood what was transpiring in the middle of this hearing where people are nervous and you have a person of authority on the bench. And just saying yes and not delving into that further, I'd submit, is an error under the controlling precedent of the Veterans Court. The red brief points to a CD or a disc that was submitted to the hearing officer beforehand, and the implication is that somehow that could be read to narrow what the party wanted to discuss. I can't find that in the record or any reference to it in the record. Do you have access to that CD or disc? I've never seen that CD or disc. What I would say is that even if you assume that the disc stands for what the VA says it stands for, you perhaps have something that is express and unambiguous, but it still doesn't get to what the claimant did or did not understand was happening on the day of that hearing or whether he even had the capacity to understand what was happening at the hearing. And so the whole error here that is really critical, and this is bottom of page three of the appendix, top of page four, is that the Veterans Court acknowledged Elysio, never suggested there was anything wrong with this standard, said first two criteria are met, and we find them met very strongly, so we need not address the third factor. And that is the error. That cannot be the rule that in some situations the board has to apply all three factors, and in other situations it can only apply two and then stop and not worry about whether or not the claimant understood. But did the court really say we don't need to address the third factor, or did the court say that when the first two factors are so clearly apparent that we can infer that the third factor was satisfied? It said that the board was not required to delve into further analysis and that the explanation provided is adequate. Respectfully, it's never going to be the case where the first two factors can be so strong that you can presume the third factor because you have no indication one way or the other what the veteran actually thought. It would have taken very little to just simply ask. You understand that you are giving up these claims, and here are the claims that you're giving up, and then there would be a record as to what the veteran understood. But just saying yes can never get you to satisfy the third factor that someone actually understood. To the extent that we find that the board, I mean the court, properly cited the legal standard and then made a finding that the legal standard was satisfied, do we have the jurisdiction to review that conclusion? I think you absolutely have jurisdiction. We have no indication at the board level that this controlling legal standard, a rule of law, was ever applied. The board never mentioned the three criteria in Delisio, never made any findings. The only thing that the board wrote is that the withdrawal is effective without giving any indication as to how they got there. And then the Veterans Court, in reviewing how the board may have got there, said, 
well, you know, looking at this, we think the first two criteria is satisfied, need not reach the third. And I would really direct... Can I just ask, I mean, we don't have jurisdiction to review what the board did, only legal interpretations that the Veterans Court adopted. I would agree, but I would say that in the Martin v. McDonald case, which is 761 F3rd, at 1369, this court said, this court's jurisdiction allows us to determine whether a Veterans Court decision may have rested on an incorrect rule of law, and moreover, to determine that the correct rule of law requires factual determinations missing from the board's decision. And so here, we believe that everything that happened below rested on an incorrect rule of... Yes, go ahead. Which is what? What was the incorrect rule of law? Not everything that... We don't get to decide everything that happened below. We get to decide whether the Veterans Court, I think the language in Martin, building on Colin Tonio, or I can't ever say that case's name, is that where the Veterans Court decision may well have rested on a legal error, we can determine whether what it did was... Did, in fact, rest on a legal error. And what is the legal error? Is it that the Veterans Court, at the top of page three, is it, said Delisio, and at the bottom of page three, seems to have changed the three-part test into a two-part test? Exactly. Reading out the third requirement is the legal error, and excusing the board from doing the full analysis required by... Suppose that we didn't think that the regulations required, in all circumstances, what Delisio said in that sentence in Delisio. Do we have an independent basis for saying that the apparent inconsistency between the top of page three and the bottom of page three is a legal error? I would answer yes, because it's problematic in this case that the Veterans Court is saying that there can be some sort of factual determination between situations where there's some confusion and situations where they're not, that that standard would be incredibly difficult to apply and would be incorrect and unfair to the claimant in a non-adversarial setting when the VA is required to really help the veteran get through this process, rather than put the burden on them to demonstrate some sort of confusion in order to have the protections under that federal regulation. You're just about into your rebuttal. You want to keep the rest of your time? Yes, I'll reserve my time. Okay. Good morning, and may it please the court. Mr. Acri essentially asked the court to review factual findings over which this court lacks jurisdiction, at least with respect to the withdrawal argument. And in any event, the court reached the right result below. Clearly, if three-part test is what's appropriate, and the court had said, we look at every part and we make factual findings as to every part, I think you're right. We wouldn't have jurisdiction over that. The real question, though, is the question that Judge Toronto posed, which is what is our obligation vis-a-vis interpreting this regulation and its meaning? 
Your Honor, yes, I'd like to address that. On page three of the appendix is the pertinent passage I think Judge Toronto referred to. The board was making a factual finding that is reviewed by the Veterans Court for clear error. And the analysis that the Veterans Court applied was to look at whether there was an adequate statement, adequate explanation of the reasons or basis for the decision. So the Veterans Court's analysis was focused on whether the board said enough to reach this conclusion that Mr. Ackery had withdrawn his claims. And what it said was, in this situation, in this case, it actually uses those words, in this case, it was not necessary for the board, it's not erroneous for purposes of making that adequate explanation of the withdrawal finding to explain and reach an affirmative decision as to whether or not Mr. Ackery understood the consequences. But it's clear they collapsed a three-part test into a two-part test, right? Well, Your Honor, I would agree. As the Veterans Court said, the board did not reach a specific factual finding as to whether or not Mr. Ackery understood the consequences. I think our position is that that is not legally erroneous. And for purposes of jurisdiction, I do want to make sure it's clear that the Veterans Court's jurisdiction here is to look at basically two things. Was there a clear error with respect to this factual finding? And secondly, alternatively, was there an adequate explanation of the reasons or basis for the decision? Both of those are factual determinations. Right, but the clear error has to depend on the legal standard that's governing the factual determinations, right? Yes, Your Honor, that's correct. But what the board did here, consistent with the regulation, was adopt a factual finding that was consistent with what the regulation requires, which, as the appellant concedes, the regulation is silent as to what it takes to effectively withdraw a claim. And the board did make a factual finding. The board, on page 11 of the appendix, did say, under the heading of finding a fact, it noted the fact that Mr. Ackery had testified before the hearing officer during this hearing, that a transcript was of the record, and that a request to withdraw had been made. And that is a sufficient fact finding. The board doesn't need to cite Delisio specifically. That is not the board's obligation. The question is, and we still have to go back to first principles here, I mean, are you backing away from Delisio as a governing legal standard? No, Your Honor. I think we're not, as we've said in our brief, we're not really taking issue with Delisio. But we don't believe that in this case the board... But you're saying the board doesn't have to apply it in every case. Well, I'm not saying that the board doesn't have to apply it. What I'm suggesting is that the board is, the board does have to apply the regulation. And the board complied with that obligation. What Delisio really does, if you look at the way the Veterans Court has interpreted Delisio since it was handed down in 2010 in a series of non-published decisions, some of which we cite in our brief, I believe at page 27, is that it's taking really a practical approach. It's looking at situations where maybe the veteran has said something inconsistent in the record, maybe something has been said that's contradictory or ambiguous as to whether the veteran intentionally withdraws. In those situations, the Veterans Court has found on a clear air basis, it's appropriate to remand for the board to make further factual findings. We don't have those factors. I mean, I think we're all kind of getting at the same worry here. The Delisio language says A, B, and C. Do you agree that A, B, and C are required by one or the other of these two regulations? No, Your Honor. I don't believe that they are... So you are disagreeing with Delisio's statement, the sentence, forget about the as applied in Delisio, its statement, the sentence, as a legal interpretation of 2204 or 3103. 
Well, Your Honor, to your question about whether it's required, the plain language of the regulation does not require those findings. You know that's not the question. Well, Your Honor, I just want to be clear that we're not taking issue with those findings with the Delisio formulation. We haven't taken issue with that. As long as we don't have to apply it. Well, Your Honor, I think the question comes down to, the way the Veterans Court has applied those criteria have not been a hard and fast rule that the board in every single case needs to reach each of those prongs. So you are taking issue with the sentence in Delisio as a straightforward interpretation of what these regulations require. Well, I think Delisio, Your Honor, I think, I do want to make sure I answer your question, but the Delisio itself was actually not interpreting the language in the regulation. Delisio was actually dealing on, it analyzed a situation in which a purported withdrawal had occurred prior to a regional office decision. So it wasn't really grappling with the decision. So you may want to characterize it as dictum. I'm asking, do you agree with the proposition that those three requirements must be met for there to be a withdrawal other than in writing? Yes. Yes, Your Honor. I think we do. We're not challenging it. So if you take that as a given, then how do you square that with the bottom sentence of page three, which says that in this case, the first two parts, even generously, the first two parts satisfy the third part. Well, Your Honor, what I think the Veterans Court was determining was, again, whether or not the board had adequately made an explanation, made sufficient factual findings to provide for meaningful judicial review. That was the prism through which the Veterans Court looked. It was applying that standard to determine whether, if it was explicit and unambiguous and based on the record, in the absence of any other indication in the record that Mr. Acri did not understand the consequences of what was happening here. So in other words, if one and two are clearly satisfied, you don't need three anymore. Well, I think that's what the Veterans Court found with respect to this case. And our position is that that was not an error. And more broadly, this court doesn't have jurisdiction to review that determination because it really is not. Given that the first two requirements are what they are, which is explicit and unambiguous, tell me a case in which those two can be met and yet the third might not be. Well, Your Honor, I think the closest, perhaps analogous case that would respond to that question. I'm sorry, if this is, if that's true in this case. What's the distinction? Well, Your Honor, I would draw the court's attention to the Ford decision by the Veterans Court. It's a 2015 case. It was cited on page 27 of our brief. And in that case, the veteran had argued that he sought to contest the finding that he had withdrawn his claim. The veteran had said yes when he had asked if he wished to withdraw his claim. And the Veterans Court said in that case, the veteran on appeal before the Veterans Court had not demonstrated that he didn't understand the consequences. So there had not been an explicit finding made by the board. That's really what I think Mr. Acri's argument is driving at. How much does the board need to explain in order to meet these standards? So you're saying the burden is on the veteran to say he didn't understand? Well, I think in Ford, that seemed to be what the Veterans Court held. I'm not suggesting that that would be the case in every situation. Is that consistent with the veteran-friendly canon? Well, Your Honor, the veteran-friendly canon, it would not really be implicated, I think, on this question. I think if the veteran is challenging 
a board decision on appeal, there is a burden on the veteran to show that there was some sort of clear error. In the Ford case, and I believe in that case, the veteran did show... So you're saying the standard should be explicit, unambiguous, and the veteran hasn't brought anything forward to indicate that he didn't understand. Your Honor, I'm not suggesting that's the case. I think what the Veterans Court has done with this standard is to apply it in not any sort of rigid formula per se. What it has done is asking whether the board, on a case-by-case basis, has properly considered the evidence before it. Putting aside how veterans are supposed to know how to act, how do board members know what standard their conduct is to be measured by? Well, the board is... What we have here, I do want to focus on the language and the regulation because the VA, in promulgating this regulation, did not specify how these withdrawals made during a hearing are supposed to be affected. And that's important, especially when you look at the purpose of that. There were two changes made in 2003. One was to allow for an on-the-record withdrawal during a hearing, but the other was to let a veterans representative do the withdrawing for the veteran. I think the rule that Mr. Acri is advocating would really complicate that process, in part because if you have a veterans representative who's speaking on behalf of the veteran, we want that to count for something. But in this case, the veterans representative didn't really speak on behalf of the veteran. You just say because he was there, we need to assume. Well, Your Honor, actually there are several references in the record where the veterans representative did speak, and on pages 147 and 148. What you see is, and I do want to respond to your initial question, I think, earlier about the middle of the conversation, because I would agree that that's the way this transcript reads. You have the judge beginning the hearing and saying, I understand that certain claims you wish to withdraw. Now, there may well have been, you could very reasonably infer from that transcript, there was a conversation that occurred prior to the hearing beginning. My understanding is that that is not uncommon in board hearings where you may have an off-the-record conversation. It's not a violation of a regulation to which I'm aware. You would think that a careful judge or hearing officer would come on the record and describe in detail the conversation that occurred off the record if they wanted it to be an on-the-record withdrawal. Well, Your Honor, I think in fairness to the judge here, I think what he attempted to do by describing, making sure that the veteran wished, listing out the claims, asking if he wished to withdraw them, the answer was yes. But then what follows from that is also relevant, because you have the judge referring to the other claims that were still in contention, and a discussion ensued with that. He asked the representative, have I got it correct? And, of course, I'm paraphrasing, have I got it correct? The representative said, yes, judge, and that's in the record as well. Well, if you agree that there's two steps to this process, what does the regulation require? And then the second would be the one that we wouldn't have essentially jurisdiction over with respect to factual findings. Certainly we'd have jurisdiction over saying if the regulation requires three things and you never mention the third, that there is a problem in the record with respect to the ultimate conclusion. But how would you have us write this? Would you have us write it to say the regulation requires what Delisio says, and then say, but we can't question at all whether or not they comply with that legal standard? Well, Your Honor, I don't think that this court needs to reach that, obviously, for the jurisdictional reasons that I mentioned, because this really is a factual finding. And especially if you look at that language in this case that the Veterans Court used, it is really the application of law to fact. I think in terms of writing a decision, I don't think that the court 
We're not taking issue with Delisio, and I don't think there's really any dispute as to the Delisio formulation. But I do think we take issue with... But you cite a whole bunch of board cases that seem to ignore the third prong. Well, not all of them. And I just, to be clear with respect to Ford, I'm not sure... But the answer is yes, you do. Well, we cite a number of cases where the Delisio formulation has been applied, and it's been applied in a manner which is rather flexible. And I think that is really... I think our position is that that application works well. It leaves it to the discretion of the hearing officer largely to determine on a case-by-case basis as to what is appropriate. I think that the rule that Mr. Acria argues would really frustrate that process to some degree. Can I ask on that question? I should probably know this by now. Can and do board hearings sometimes take place with only the representative there and not the veteran? Your Honor, I don't know. I know that the veteran would have the opportunity to testify if he or she wanted. Your question is whether the veteran could be completely absent. I'm not sure. Right, because I keep thinking when I look at the regulation, it lays out what's to be done in writing, and I think it's agreed here that as to a writing, there's no requirement for further inquiry into whether the veteran understood what was being submitted in writing. So I ask myself, why should it be any different when the thing is done orally? And one circumstance, I guess, occurs to me to think about is what if the veteran isn't even there and the representative makes the withdrawal, which the 2003 modification of the regulation expressly contemplates. So is that a fictional scenario or is that a real-world scenario? Well, Your Honor, I can't speak to whether or not that really is the case where veterans don't appear, so I don't know the answer to that. But I do think, first of all, with respect to the Delisio language, that the Veterans Court has applied that to situations involving a written submission as well as an oral one. I think Mr. Acri's argument seems to be that we should have a different standard for hearing withdrawal versus a written withdrawal. Our position is that really complicates things, especially when you do have the language. You said the Veterans Court has applied it to written withdrawals as well? Yes, Your Honor, and I think this is another indication that the Delisio formulation that the Veterans Court set out was not attempting to sort of adopt a really new formulation that would apply just to the oral withdrawals because it cites, it's a 2010 decision, but it cites a number of cases that predate the 2003 change to the regulation, and at that point you could only withdraw in writing. So there were four cases that the Veterans Court cited in Delisio, several of which, I believe three of which, actually predated that change. So the Veterans Court did not understand that it was adopting a rule that's specific to the hearing situation. Before you sit down, let me ask you a question. On page 148 of the appendix, the hearing officer says, or the judge says, prior to going on the record, it was indicated that additional documentary evidence was going to be submitted together with a waiver of regional office consideration, and we will accept that evidence into the record. What does that mean? Your Honor, I think this goes to the question you asked earlier about a CD, and my understanding is, and I don't know what's on the CD and I haven't personally looked at it, but I think this particular reference on page 148 is to the veteran's desire to provide a disc to the judge that contained certain evidence, and I believe that that evidence was related to his insomnia disability claim, and so I believe that that reflects his desire to just put this CD on the record. But I don't think that's pertinent really to the question that we're talking about. Okay. 
see I'm out of time, but thank you. For these reasons, we respectfully request the court dismiss for lack of jurisdiction or affirm the judgment below. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Bennett, I want to ask you before you rebut what he's going to say, and I'll give you an extra minute if needed, or we can just wait to start until I finish, but what is it you want us to say? How would you envision that we would write this opinion? Your Honor, I envision that this court would write the opinion setting forth the standard, which is put forth in D'Alessio and in the Warren v. McDonald case, requiring that this is the standard the board must follow. I don't think the board needs to make detailed findings as to each of the three factors to ultimately reach the place where they find the withdrawal is effective, but there has to be a recognition at the board level that to reach the conclusion that the withdrawal is effective, that there has been some record adduced that shows what the claimant did or did not understand, in particular that the claimant understood that they were giving up this claim. So you want us to say that the D'Alessio three-part test is the most reasonable reading of the regulation? Yes, Your Honor, and make that federal circuit precedent. To Judge Taranto's question to my opponent as to whether the veteran would be required to attend the hearing, I'd submit that I don't know as a matter of procedure whether that requirement exists, but it seems that it would because you can't make factual findings, I don't think, based on what a representative or a lawyer is saying. And in the Warren v. McDonald case, we had a situation where the veteran called the VA on the phone and there's dispute as to whether he did or did not indicate that he wanted to withdraw his claims, and the veterans court there said that the phone call was not sufficient, that you had to inquire as to the veteran's intent live. So I don't think that that's a hard and fast rule, but it is some indication that to make the factual findings. You made an analogy early in your argument to the way things are done in court and some idea that do you think that a lawyer who stands up in court and says we withdraw counts one and six of our complaint has to have the client there and there has to be a colloquy with the district court? I think it totally depends on the type of matter. I was in a family law dispute not very long ago where we entered into a settlement on the record at an evidentiary hearing and the state court judge there directed all of the questions to our clients, not to us, and he wouldn't enter the settlement until it was clear that the clients themselves understood what they'd agreed to and that they'd been properly advised by their counsel. So that's one situation in my limited experience where the court, I don't think, would have taken just the lawyer's representation that everyone understood what was happening. To rebut what my opponent said during his argument, I think we heard him concede that Delisio is the proper standard. If so, the Veterans Court cannot ignore the third requirement. We also heard my opponent go on to say that the Veterans Court found that when criteria numbers one and two are satisfied, then the third requirement need not be met. Those two statements are internally inconsistent. We also heard him say you can infer full understanding of the consequences from the transcript. Our position is that you can never infer full understanding and knowledge of the consequences unless there is some record that would actually 
speak to that. And we're out of time. Great. Thank we, you. We would request that this court reverse and remand the Veterans Court. Thank you. Thank you for your pro bono service to the veteran in the court.